0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, is about, you guessed it, the late megastar Whitney Houston. In true biopic fashion, the movie recreates many of the singer's well-documented high and low points, from her early beginnings to the number one single's blockbuster movie roles and struggles with drug abuse. Naomi Aki capably portrays Houston as an artist boxed in by the rigid expectations laid out by her parents and the industry. And while it's clearly meant as a tribute, does this retelling reveal anything new? I'm Ayesha Harris, and today we're talking about Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: Joining me today is Ronald Young Jr. He's the host of the film and television review podcast, Leaving the Theater. Welcome back, Ronald. I'm saving
2: all my love for you, Aisha.
1: Also joining us is podcast producer and film and culture critic, Kate Young. Welcome back to you too, Kate. I'm so sorry that I'm not quite clever enough to come up with a quick pun, but I'm very happy to be here. It's all right. (laughs) I'm sure we'll have maybe some other puns later to share. So Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, stars Naomi Ackie as Whitney Houston. Tamara Tooney plays Whitney's mother, Sissy Houston, a successful background singer for artists like Aretha Franklin and Whitney's cousin, Dionne Warwick. Sissy helps young Whitney develop her own singing voice, and she orchestrates a nightclub performance showcase that impresses the founder and president of Arista Records, Clive Davis. Clive is played by Stanley Tucci here. Now, from there, the film traces Whitney's rise throughout the 80s and 90s as she breaks records, becomes a music and movie icon. Later, of course, it follows her tragic downfall as drug abuse and other setbacks begin to take a toll on her life. The rest of the cast includes Nafisa Williams as Robin Crawford, Whitney's creative director, closest confidant, and one-time lover, Ashton Sanders as Bobby Brown, Whitney's volatile husband, and Clark Peters as John Houston, Whitney's domineering father and manager. The movie was directed by Casey Lemons and written by Anthony McCartin. And it's also probably worth noting here that Clive Davis, as well as Houston's sister-in-law Pat Houston, are among the movie's many producers. It's in theaters now. So Ronald, let's start with you. How did you feel about Whitney Houston? I Want to Dance with Somebody. Such a long title. But how did you feel about it?
2: I'm here for it. I, (laughs) you know, I I enjoyed it. And if you can hear my voice, it's with a major caveat. I'd say caveats, plural. You know, I like Whitney Houston's music. And I think, you know, it's hard not to hear Whitney Houston singing because it's her voice in this movie. And for most of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when you hear it, for anyone who's heard Whitney Houston's voice, you know it does something to you. Mm-hmm. And sitting in the theater, when that was happening, I'm getting goosebumps and I'm feeling away. And I had to remind myself, Ronald, you're not doing this because you like the movie or because the movie's that good. You're doing this because of the music and because of how you feel about Whitney Houston. And to be frank, if that's not a problem for you, then you're going to enjoy this movie. You know, like I think that's what like most biopics should do. This movie was built in a factory made just to make biopics. It has all of the notes that biopics hit. Like the minute you see a drug, you know that it's going downhill. You know, (laughs) somebody's going to steal some money. You know, someone's going to take advantage of someone. All of those things uh, happen in this. But I think the parts that kind of set this apart for me was that they focused in on. A bit of a queer love story, which I really enjoyed that. It kind of gave texture to Whitney that I didn't know. It was breaking news to me at the time in the movie when I saw this. And I know I was talking to friends who mentioned that they had already known this about Whitney Houston, but I did not. So for me, it was fresh and new information at the time. So uh, with all of that in mind, I think, I mean, I liked it. I think it was one of the better biopics I've seen. But it's by no means perfect.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you pointed out her voice and sort of what it does because I do think her voice Whitney's voice is what really carries the movie and that is how a lot of us will respond is to that voice because it's there's a reason this movie was made yeah. <laughs> you know
3: she she was quote-unquote the voice I very much agree I think I the my top line note is that I walked out of the movie and I thought hmm it's giving Bohemian Rhapsody mm. lo and, and behold <laughs> they share a screenwriter so yes. I was like okay that tracks <laughs> But I completely agree with Ronald in that I don't think this movie is very good, but I had a fantastic time watching it, and it's largely because of the music. I think that Naomi Aki gives a great performance, and it actually did take me a while to realize that it was Whitney singing, because I thought it was, but I guess there are points where they mix their voices in, and so I couldn't quite... I wasn't quite sure until after the film, and I asked about it, but... Every single performance scene gave me goosebumps. They were extremely enjoyable to sit through. And if you are coming to see this movie because you were a fan of Whitney Houston's music, you are going to have a great time. I don't think that the average viewer is particularly going to care about the fact that this movie skips from highlight to highlight to highlight with no connecting tissue in between whatsoever. (laughs) Because they're hair to hair The music. The movie gives you lots of that. There are some iconic Whitney performances in this film that I didn't even know existed before I saw this movie. And I got home and I looked them up and I watched them and it was incredible to see. And I loved that part of it. I actually did happen to know about Robin just because by pure coincidence on my current podcast, we were working on a Whitney season that's out now. You can listen to it if you like to. But I was intimately familiar with her story by that point. And that's part of how I was kind of able to see how much was getting left out and how quickly we were moving through things. I mean, Obviously, Whitney's drug use is a big part of her legacy, unfortunately. It is something that we know about her, and it's something that she got essentially harassed about from a lot of the time that she was still alive. But this movie kind of barely nods at it like she starts early in the film smoking some pot you Mm -hmm. kind of see her cut a line somewhere midway through and then all of a sudden she's a full-blown dragon (laughs) and it's like where did this come from the movie doesn't do a good job of like building on her life so much as just skipping through moments that you probably recognize
1: yeah i think what you're both touching on is kind of my exact reaction which is that this was made for her fans and that they will be pleased at the end of the day i saw it at a press screening i think it was a mixture of press and maybe some other people even before the lights like dimmed down and like we have not seen anything on screen yet there's no credits all we hear is whitney's voice presumably it's the actual whitney and we don't see it but she's doing a warm up a vocal warm up it's super just subtle it's nothing she's not doing these grand but you hear it and someone in the audience started you know, clapping her hands very, like, giddily. <laughs> and throughout the movie, there were people who were just, like, so giddy every time a performance moment happened. And then toward the end, when, you know, the obvious turning point happens and everything starts going downhill, as soon as she goes to rehab, from then on, there were multiple people around me who were sniffling and, like, trying to control themselves the whole time. And that is what these biopics bank on. When you're doing a biopic about a super famous person, even if you, like Ronald, weren't aware that she was queer or like we consider her queer now even though she did not acknowledge this throughout her lifetime even if you go in not knowing that you still have some memory of her and you have some understanding of her and that is what is driving the force of this movie more than anything that the creators on screen are doing it's just kind of like a weird sort of funhouse simulation of like what actually happened i could sense from casey lemon's and the screenwriter a sense that we have to this is a black woman we know how black women have been treated and also we know that drug abuse is something that is often veers too heavily into we're going to turn this into requiem for a dream and it's just going to (laughs) get like ramped it up and i could tell they didn't want to overplay their hand in that case because then you can really get into the realm of parody. And we don't want to do that when we're talking about someone like Whitney Houston. So I sense this sort of need to respect the story. But then at the end of the day, it felt to me a little bit like an overcorrection in that like it just didn't really delve too deeply into that. And it also didn't really delve too deeply into her artistry either. Mm -hmm. Do you think that say you're a casual Whitney fan, would you come away from this feeling as if you understood
3: her a bit more? I don't think that you would, to be completely honest. I think that the biggest flaw to me in this film is that it doesn't really make any effort to examine Whitney's internal life at all. I don't think that I really got a sense of what she wanted or why she made the choices she did. We know as people who, you know, live in the real world and live through her life and her legacy, that she was very motivated by her love of the craft. Like, she was an incredible musician. You know, there's a reason she was called The Voice. I mean, she was an incredible vocalist who understood her instrument and was able to use it to create the music that we know and love today. But I think in the film, you just get a sense of, like, the idea that she has a great voice and people are, like, listening to her music and she's excited about that. But, like... There's no sense that she has a driving purpose. And I found that really frustrating because I, f- I think that that isn't true of Whitney and that she was very clear about the musicianship that she brought to her career. And I don't think that we get a sense of that at all. That bothered me because I think that we deserve to see how involved she was in the making of her music. Craft is important to her.
1: The movie actually makes it a point to at one point where Clive actually... Right after she signed the contract with Arista, he asked her, like, do you write songs? She says, no. And it's interesting to put that in there because it's true. She mm-hmm. didn't write songs. And I get that. And I think the way we value artists, the way we treat them, and we don't consider people who just sing songs, um, mm-hmm. or at least women, and especially Black women who are singers, we don't give them as much of the reverence as they deserve. But I think at the end of the day, she still, her voice was an instrument. Mm-hmm. And not to see her actually like wrestling with that and using that instrument in rehearsals, I think, was a real... I don't know, it was a missed
3: opportunity, right? Especially because as the film goes on, we see because of the drug use that her voice starts to go. Like she isn't as vocally strong as she used to be. And it is something that bothers her because her vocals were the one thing that she could count on. You know, she can do the drugs, she can marry Bob around, she can do whatever she wants because at the end of the day, she shows up and she sings and she can always get it done. And then there comes a point in which she can't get it done anymore. Mm -hmm. That's shown as a a tragedy, but we don't kind of get to see the way that it impacts her sense of self.
2: Well, I think what we're talking about here is kind of the biopic problem, because this is really a movie of archetypes. You know, you got the artist, you got the executive, you got the pushy slash like thieving family, you got the untrustworthy romance, uh, perhaps jealous, all of that. All of those like kind of things are going on in this story, and it doesn't feel personal to Whitney as a result. You know, like if we talk about like her motivation, I didn't walk away feeling like I knew anything that motivated Whitney or... Or that woke her up in the morning, or that even drove her to drugs. To be honest, I think they tried to hint at it a little bit, but they really didn't. I don't think that it was successful in telling me why there wasn't a moment in mm-hmm. which, like, we're, we're understanding why she's leaning into drugs or the exhaustion makes sense because you go on to like the you know the seventy day tour and we're talking about exhaustion and she's saying, well, I need to pick me up. And I think they tried to make a loose connection between her having to get to the gods in order to sing like the gods. And when you take the Whitney. Houston story and just boil it down to a tragic life and a tragic loss then we kind of lose all of the things about her life that were like joyful and great and things that she would have like wanted to tell us you know just like little minutia and I feel like I wish more biopics including this one would give me more of that about the artist just so I would know them a little more rather than just saying things that we already know which is that she had a great voice and she had a tragic death which it, it doesn't feel Fair to paint the whole picture. And I also don't think it's fair to Robin Crawford. Her story in this movie is kind of still swallowed up by Whitney's narrative. And Robin Crawford is still alive and well with a life. And I remember at the end wanting a Chiron about Robin because, like, you know. I, what what happened to her? Is everything okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Did she move on? Mm-hmm. We know she wrote a book and all that, but like I think if that's the story we're going to tell and we're going to anchor it there, it just kind of feels like we just used it as a jumping-off point for the rest of this tragic story. I don't know. I think we're talking about really the biopic problem here, which is that you're not getting deep and personal mm-hmm. enough in these stories to make whole characters rather than just archetypes.
1: Yeah, that personal aspect, I think, is really interesting to think about because... After seeing this, I finally sat down and watched one of the documentaries that has come out in the last 10 years about her, Whitney, which was directed by Kevin McDonald and came out in 2018. And, you know, I had some issues with the way that framed the story as well, but there are a lot of details that obviously were left out that are not in this film. And one of the details that I found interesting was that there are moments in the film where you'll hear Whitney's voice singing some song and then you'll see these moments, just a montage of images of what was happening at the time that we're at in this documentary. So you'll see like Reagan, you'll see the drug war, you'll see the crack epidemic, like you'll see all those things. And I felt as though with this movie, this biopic, they didn't situate her in any sort of place in time. She just existed within Mm -hmm. this vacuum. There was no sense of like what was going on in the culture outside of her except for the fact that you know the infamous being booed at the the Soul Train Awards because a lot of black people felt that she was this manufactured and manufactured for a majority white audience i just felt as though that's also a missed opportunity to sort of engage her with people outside of just bobby brown and the the, the culture like We don't really understand what she meant to that time. That was the era of big singers. Like, I don't need someone showing up as Mariah Carey or whatever. Like, I don't need that. But, like, it would have been helpful to in some way sort of put her in this sense of place and time, which I think would help also illuminate sort of what her craft was and why she was so special. And I didn't come away understanding why she was so special at that time? I mean, I knew it, but like the movie didn't tell me that.
2: I think the other part is that like not only what you just said, but there's no accounting for the passage of time in this mm-hmm. movie because it's, it's
1: very it's very shoddy. Yeah, because I'm
2: like, is she just 16 the entire film, and we just missed it? You know, like there's even when she you know moves in with Robin and their relationship is progressing, and then from the time she signs with Arista and like from the time she makes her first single, I remember sitting there thinking, how old is she? Yeah what year is it? It's and then the only confusing. time they actually start emphasizing the year, it's kind of a wink to the audience, like, okay, it's 2012, here's the hotel, y'all know what's yeah. about to happen now. Yeah. In which I'm yeah. like, I don't, why would you, I know what's gonna happen. I think they start off by saying it's 1983 when she's at church. There's not much given to the passage of time in this movie, which makes it tricky to, like you said, say, where are we? What's going on? Except for these headline moments we get. She's not black enough, booed at the Soul Train Awards, meeting Bobby Brown, which makes it, like, I think Kate said this earlier, which makes it pretty much a highlight reel, which we can just go on YouTube and watch that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think one of the things for me that this movie did do well is demonstrate for me why she was facing that criticism of, like, being manufactured, being a white pop star, all of that stuff. Because to me, I'm young enough that, like, my first real exposure to Whitney Houston was, like, my love is your love. Like, I didn't really have a sense of her career before Mm. that until (laughs) fairly recently. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, what do you mean Whitney Houston is a white artist? That doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Um, And I think this film, when um, they do the scene where she's filming... Um, oh my goodness, I forgot the, which song Oh, it is. It's, it's How Well I Know. How Well I, I Know, think, right. Yeah, and yeah, she's, yeah. In, she's in this like gray sparkly thing and all her dancers are white and it's like very like early MTV, like white girl, Betty, whatever. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then Robin's like, you look ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I really hadn't gotten it. And I think like I've seen that music video a million times, it's on YouTube. I don't think I got the sense of like, What image they were trying to project of her at that time without the added context of the rest of her life. And now that I had it, I was like, I mean, I wouldn't have treated her as badly as she was treated, but like, yeah, I get it now.
1: Yeah. And they also connect her wanting to link up with Bobby Brown to her wanting to ditch her good girl image and also be like... He was the blackest thing you could think of at that time, like, or the blackest person in R and B who wasn't an art, like a rapper. You know, he was he was as black as you get, and try to link that to part of her identity and why she was attracted to him. But I also don't think it went far enough in sort of exploring that more. So, yeah. Uh, So to wrap up, as we mentioned already, Clive Davis and one of uh, Whitney's relatives are some of the producers on this. And I thought it was interesting the way Clive Davis and Bobby Brown were portrayed. In many ways, Bobby Brown is sort of absolved of a lot of guilt and Clive Davis is kind of this benevolent father figure in her life what did you make of of these performances and
2: what they were trying to do i feel like with clive davis i mean you don't cast stanley tucci unless you want me to like that character Yeah. Yeah, and so it felt like a friendly casting in that regard and he was received in a warm light i think when it comes to ashton sanders portrayal of bobby brown i think you're right it comes off like an absolution because they didn't tell us anything we didn't already know about Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston's relationship. Let's not forget, they had a reality show Mm -hmm. in which, like, some of us watched in the mid to early aughts or late, you know what I I mean? I did. And Bobby Brown is still alive. So, you're right. It does let them off the hook, but... I guess I'm uncertain of what more they could have done in that regard or what this would have looked like if it weren't people close to Whitney Houston uh, producing the film.
3: I agree. I think, to be completely honest, like, neither Stanley or Ashton were the performances that stood out to me. Like, I was primarily focused on Naomi and Nafisa. I think, to me, they're the big draw. And I really appreciated how much of this movie is focused on that relationship and her queerness. Um I was <laughs> pleased to see Clive's boyfriend shows up in the end too. Yeah. And I liked that the movie does not it does not do what I think Bohemian Rhapsody does, which is equate her queerness with her downfall. Yes. And that I really appreciated because I think for the majority of the film Robin is kind of the one voice of reason in a lot of situations. She's the one coming in and saying like you're living in squalor, like you're Whitney Houston, this is not acceptable. Like come with me, let's go to rehab. Let's get cleaned up. To me, I really thought that the core of this film mostly was and should have been in a more pronounced way that relationship because I think that is really the core of where we could have mined new material for Whitney and where we could have learned something new about her because they were deeply in love from when she was quite young. And she kept Robin in her orbit for the rest of her life. So what does that mean for that relationship and the conflict that they were having when Bobby enters the picture? To me, that's where the real meat of the story is. And I was pleased by how much we got, but I wanted more.
1: You know, at the end of the day, it's a biopic. You'll go in, be warned. Like, if you don't like biopics, then this might not Mm -hmm. be for you. But if you have any sort of connection to Whitney this seems like a, a nice crowd pleaser. And at the very least, it'll help you make you want to go back and rewatch all of her performances because that's what I did after this. <laughs>
3: yeah. And the other thing I will say is that the one thing this movie does well is that it hammers in how many absolute bangers she had in her yeah, So many. I yeah. mean, hit after hit. Yeah, slaps all of them. <laughs> absolute bangers. And you get performances for so many of them. And that yes. really is the big draw of the movie. Naomi does a great job of kind of mimicking her mannerisms in a way that doesn't feel like a parody and so you kind of feel like you're getting your own little Whitney Houston concert it's fun <laughs> i don't
1: disagree <laughs> Well, we want to know what you think about I Want to Dance with Somebody. Find us at facebook.com slash pchh. That brings us to the end of our show. Ronald Young Jr. and Kate Young, thanks for being here. It was great.
3: Thank you for having me. Thanks for
2: having me.
1: This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Mike Katziv. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator and our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all tomorrow when we'll be talking about our pop culture predictions for 2023. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase, plus earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. Your next trip is closer than you think with the Venture Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See capital1.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge